1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Will you please pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this beautiful, beautiful Lord's Day, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. God, where we can come together as the body of Christ and we can think about the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his splendor and all of his glory, thinking about how he came to this earth 2,000 years ago and became a man for our salvation that he and he alone righteously lived. He perfectly and faithfully obeyed all of the commandments of God. And despite his own perfect record of righteousness, he suffered and died on a cross, treated as a criminal. But Lord, we know why. We know it was not because of his own guilt or his own sin. It was because, as the Apostle Paul writes, you, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to prove that that was the case, three days later, God, you raised him from the grave. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, as you stepped out of that tomb, you declared that sin was defeated, and along with it, death was triumphed over. So God, this morning, our hearts are filled with joy and wonder and awe, at the good news of the gospel, at the grace of our God, which is revealed in and through Jesus Christ. And God, we ask now as we consider this passage of scripture, and we think about some of the implications of the resurrection of our Lord, God, would you fill our hearts with encouragement and joy and above all hope today as we think about this passage. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, family. Welcome to Apostles. Please grab a seat. And happy Easter to all of you. Thank you. Now, I know Ryan already warmed us up with this, but you just have to do it. He is risen. Man, we are well trained here. He is risen indeed. And that, of course, is what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, is risen from the grave. He has triumphed over death. Now, the passage of scripture that we've selected for this year's Easter sermon deals with a very important question. Are you ready for it? You should just say yes, because I'm going to give it to you whether you're ready or not. So, are we ready for it? Okay, here it is. Here's the question. 
What happens to a Christian when they die? What happens to a Christian when they die? Now, I know that lots of people do not like to talk about death. Maybe even just me suggesting the topic to you has already made some of you feel a little bit uncomfortable in your seat. Listen, that's totally understandable. Death is one of the greatest fears that we as human beings have. In fact, whenever lists of our top fears or our top phobias are published, death always finds itself somewhere near the very top of the the list. Although I have heard that there is a significant portion of our population that actually ranks fear of public speaking above the fear of death, which is amazing to think about. That means that there are people, some of them might even be sitting next to you right now, who would prefer to be the one in the casket at a funeral instead of the one delivering the eulogy. Go figure. But generally speaking, as humans, we are afraid of death. It's understandable. And many people do everything in their power to avoid ever having to discuss the subject. But please note that the Apostle Paul, who is the one who wrote this letter, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, The Apostle Paul was convinced that the answer to the question of what happens to a Christian when they die was a very encouraging answer. Did you see that in verse 18? The way that the paragraph ends, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, or in light of everything I just said to you, encourage one another with these words. And so friends, while death is not usually a subject that we like to talk about, I can assure you that our time reflecting on it this morning will ultimately feel encouraging and hopeful, not discouraging or depressing. Well, here we go. Verse 13 begins a new paragraph in the letter to the, first Thessalon- or the, letter to the Thessalonians. And in this one verse, Paul, the apostle, gives us his aim in the entire passage. He just tells us up front what his goal is or what his purpose is with this section of thought. Look again at verse 13. He writes this, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not or who have no hope. What's his goal? What does he want to accomplish in the passage of scripture that we've read this morning? Well, here it is. He does not want these precious saints that he loves so much, right? He says brothers. That's a a word describing other Christians. He does not want these precious saints uninformed, or you could say left in the dark, about what has happened to other Christians who have died. That's what the word asleep means. It's a euphemism for death. So he doesn't want these precious saints to be in the dark about what has happened to their loved ones who have died in the Lord so that, here's his objective, so that they will not grieve like people without hope. And now we come to the big idea that we can take away from this passage this morning. When a Christian dies, we need not grieve like those who have no hope. Now, don't miss this. This is really important. 
Notice with me, look again at verse 13. Notice that Paul does not write, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who die so that you may not grieve. And stop there. He doesn't say that. He's not saying, I want to write this so you won't grieve. What Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians and what God is saying to you and I today by extension does not take away the experience of grieving. As Christians, we grieve over death. It's perfectly natural to do that. It's godly to do that. Uh, Even Jesus, our Lord, did this. Does anybody know the shortest verse in the Bible? You can just say it if you know it. Jesus wept. That verse is in John chapter 11. It's verse 35. And that verse comes when Jesus visited the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. So confronted with the death of somebody that our Lord loved. Witnessing the sorrow and the grief and the mourning of other people that he loved and cared about. Jesus himself was overcome with grief. And he wept. So as Christians, we do grieve. In fact, you could even say this, that the depth of your grief over the death of someone is a direct indicator of the depth of your love for that person. These things are related. The the deeper you love somebody, the more grieved you will be if that person has died. So the Bible does not teach us that, hey, if you're a Christian, you get a pass on grieving. You're never going to be sorrowful. You're never going to grieve. But it does teach us that our grief ought to be different than the grief of the non-Christian. The grief that a Christian experiences is a grief that must be tempered with hope. When you stop and think about it, for the non-Christian, death leads to hopelessness. I mean, if your worldview says that there is nothing beyond the grave, or even that we just can't know what's beyond the grave, there's nothing past death, that you just die and that's the end of it, then death is truly marked by hopelessness. Because when somebody you love dies, that's it. That person is forever only a part of your past. They're no longer a part of your future. And it it breeds hopelessness. And of course, your own death will mean the end of everything that you've ever loved or cared about. And the end of everything that you hope to do in this world. There's no more joy to be had. There's no more love to be shared or thrill or laughter to be experienced. There's no goals to be accomplished. There's no more positive impact that you can make in the world. It's all finished. And this helps explain again why so many people are afraid of death. Or they're deeply uncomfortable talking about it. Or they try to avoid it. Or they even try to joke about it. Just to lighten things up a little bit. It reminds me of the words of comedian Woody Allen. He said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Family, as Christians, we should be the least uncomfortable people thinking about or talking about death. Because as Christians, even in death, let me say it this way, especially in death, we have a great and abiding hope. Why? 
Well, we're given three reasons in the rest of the paragraph why even in death, you and I as Christians have great hope. But first, the Apostle Paul grounds those three reasons in the resurrection of Jesus. Look again at verse 14. He says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Are you seeing how his argument works here? He says, listen, since we believe that Jesus died and Jesus rose again, then these other things follow. These other things are true. We could rephrase this in a more Eastery way. Is Eastery a word? If it's not, it totally should be because it's working right now. So here's the more Eastery way to phrase this. Since Jesus is alive... Here are three reasons why, even in death, we have great hope. You ready for them? Since Jesus is alive, number one, death is not the end. We'll read 14 again and now shift your focus onto the second part of the verse. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, or again, we'll read it Eastery. For since we believe that Jesus is alive... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This passage reminds us that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will return to this earth. And when he does, he will bring with him our loved ones who have died in the Lord. And so what that must mean is that those who have already died in the Lord are alive right now. They are with Jesus at this very moment. So, to address the big question, what happens to a Christian when they die? The answer is this. They go immediately into the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says as much. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our Christian loved ones, people that you've lost and you love, friend, they are right now at this very moment in glory. They are in the presence of the Lord. And by extension, this means that when any of us who are also believers, who are also trusting in Jesus as our Savior, when we ourselves face death, and we all do, nobody gets a pass on this, we will immediately enter into the presence of of the Lord. What great hope we have in the resurrected Jesus. Now, before moving on, I need to point out one more thing. The statement, death is not the end, isn't only true for the Christian. The Bible teaches us that just as certainly as there is a heaven, there is also a hell. So it's not just those who put their faith in Jesus that live beyond the grave. The Bible speaks emphatically about a day of judgment for those who reject Jesus, God's appointed Savior. Here's Jesus himself teaching about this in Matthew chapter 25. Here Jesus is teaching about the final judgment. Listen carefully. He says this beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another, 
as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he goes on a few verses later to say this. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then Jesus summarizes all of this teaching in verse 46 this way. He says this, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, death is not the end. Death is not the end. If you're a Christian, that thought should not scare you. It need not scare you. Death for you means entrance into the presence of the Lord. But if you're not a Christian, that thought should sober you. But please also hear this. Just as forcefully as Jesus warns you about hell, he openly offers you heaven. Friend, listen, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to understand that the gospels are replete with open invitations from Jesus, where he invites you to come to him and experience life here and now and life everlasting by putting your trust in him and your hope in him and making him your Lord and your Savior. Here's John chapter 7 verse 37. Jesus is at one of the great feasts of the Jews and he's looking at all of these religious people who are totally missing it because they think salvation is found in being a rule keeper. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. We all fail at that. That's why I've come. That's why my father sent me here. It was to pay for your sins and to give you my righteousness. And Jesus stands up at this great feast and he looks at a bunch of people who aren't getting it. And he says this, John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I mean, what what is the qualifier here? What is it that you have to do in order to come to Jesus? Just be thirsty. Just have that thirst in your soul, that hunger in your soul, that longing in your soul. And Jesus is saying, that's all. If that's how you feel, you can come to me. And he goes on to say this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You don't have to measure up. You didn't have to grow up in the right home. You don't have to get a certain score on your SATs. You don't have to live on the right side of the tracks. Jesus just says, whoever wants to, you can come to me. And when you do, my spirit will come inside of you and living water will flow out of your heart. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, famously in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the qualifier? What do you have to do? What does it take to be acceptable to Jesus? He says, are you burned out? Are you tired of trying to make it on your own? Are you trying to figure things, are you tired of figuring things out on your own? Is your soul burdened and exhausted and fatigued? He says, if that's how you feel, you can just come to me. Just come to me. And when you do, I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace in your heart. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of you are here today and you have a religious background. Could be in Christianity, it could be in a different faith. And maybe you've even felt exhausted from trying to do all that you know you're supposed to do to be accepted by God. There's certain rules that you have to follow. There's certain benchmarks that you have to hit. And if you're not obedient enough or you're not faithful enough, then you don't get to make it to eternity. And you'll find yourself in hell. And maybe you have felt exhausted on that performance treadmill throughout your life, trying to be moral enough, trying to be good enough, trying to pray enough, trying to go to church enough. And Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, that's not it. You're missing it. If you go at it that way, you're never going to be good enough, but I am. And I died on that cross in your place so that your soul could experience rest. You can get off that performance treadmill and just say, it's not about my own righteousness. I'm trusting in Jesus because he's the only one who got it 100% right. And Jesus says, when you do that, you will find rest for your souls. But you might say, Daniel, are you sure? Can it really be that easy? What if I try to come to Jesus like you're saying and he says no? Here's what Jesus says in John 6, 37. We'll put it on the screen. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Not if you come to me like this. Not if you're that type of a person. Whoever. Are you thirsty? He says, come drink. Are you burdened down? Come find rest. Come to me. I will never, ever cast you out. So friend, I'll say this and we'll move on. If you end up in hell, it's not him. It's you. Okay. Since Jesus is alive, death is not the end. When a Christian dies, they go immediately into the presence of the Lord. And now notice, since Jesus is alive, In verse 17, we will be reunited with our loved ones again. Look at verse 15 and we'll read through verse 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Since Jesus is alive, we will be reunited with our loved ones again. In these couple of verses, we are given great insight into the events of the return of Christ, also sometimes called the coming of the Lord. When Jesus returns... Believers who are still alive don't move to the front of the line for the resurrection. Okay, there's no fast pass in in this process or genie plus like Disneyland. Just because you're still alive, you don't get to experience the resurrection first. No, he says those who have already died in faith and have been with the Lord for all this time, they actually experience the fullness of the resurrection first. He writes, the dead in Christ will rise first. But as they do, those who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so notice what that means. It's right there in verse 17. I'll put it back on the screen. He says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Christian, we don't grieve as those without hope because we will be reunited with our loved ones who have died in the Lord. It's either going to happen at your own death or it'll happen at the return of Christ, whichever comes first. And I know we're all praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. My pastor that I grew up under lost his oldest son tragically in a car crash almost 15 years ago. And I remember him saying, in his typically clear and powerful way, he said this, for the believer, death is not goodbye. It's I'll see you later. And this changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, any lengthy separation from a loved one is sad and it's painful. But if you know that it's temporary, it totally changes things. Some of you parents know the heartache of having your children grow up and choose a college and leave your home and go off to college. Ryan reminded me of the experience over at that parking lot at Campus Point at UCSB where as summer ends, sometimes you'll see parents and their children there in the parking lot and they're crying and they're hugging them and you know what's going on. They're dropping them off. It's the final goodbye for their beginning of their stay at university. Some of you parents know that heartache. It hurts your mommy or your daddy heart. But we all know that the ache that you feel when a child moves, moves away is nothing like the hurt or the ache that you feel when a child dies. And the obvious reason for that is because you know that one separation is temporary and the other separation is permanent. So the fact that a separation is not permanent tempers your heartache or your grief. Friends, this is exactly Paul's point. He knows that if you and I can be informed about the truth about death, namely that when a believer dies, we will see them again, it has a way of tempering our grief. Yes, we grieve. We are saddened by this, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope of ever seeing that person again. We know there is coming a day when we will be reunited in Christ and in glory with that person that we love. And that radically alters our experience of grief. Therefore, when our Christian loved ones die, you could say of our grief that it's a hopeful hurting or it's an expectant agony. Okay, since Jesus is alive, death is not the end and will be reunited with our believing loved ones. But finally notice, since Jesus is alive, we'll be with the Lord forever. Do you see that at the end of verse 17? Paul says this, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here it is. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now I know that this was already implied in what's been said. If, when, if it's true that when a believer dies, we enter into the presence of the Lord, then we know that we will be with the Lord. But two things need to be made clear here. First is the permanence of Paul's statement. 
At the resurrection, when we are caught up with the Lord, this is not a temporary reunion with him or with our spiritual family. From that moment on, we will always be with the Lord. That's what he writes. Guys, it's called eternal life for a reason. We'll be with him forever. That's the first thing. The second thing is I just want to remind all of us, or maybe inform some of us if this is all new to you, of what life will be like with the Lord forever. In the book of Revelation, which is the final book in our scriptures, the apostle John is given a revelation. And he's, he's seeing into the future. And at the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 21, he records for us a vision of life in heaven, a life in the kingdom of God. Here's what he writes, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, this is why Psalm 1611 reminds us that in God's presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is non-stop bliss. No more tears. No more aches and pain. No more death. No more separation. No more loss forever. As surely as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, there is coming a day when everything wrong in this world will be made right, Everything ugly in this world will be made beautiful. Everything broken in this world will be made whole. And everything evil in this world will be, will be banished forever as righteousness covers the whole earth. No wonder the Apostle Paul concludes this passage by saying, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, let's bring this message to a close. If you're new to this, that's preacher talk for I need five more minutes. The Apostle Paul has given great encouragement to these Christians in the face of death. But he ended this paragraph with a call to action. Did you catch it? Did you see it there in verse 18? He didn't say in verse 18, Therefore be encouraged by my words, grace and peace. That's not what he said. He said, therefore encourage one another, with these words. There's a call to action here. As a church family, we are called to encourage one another with these words. Now, I know a lot of Christians who would love to be able to encourage another Christian who is experiencing loss 
and grief. But one of the big problems is sometimes you feel like you don't quite know what to say. Maybe that resonates with you. Family, Paul here tells us exactly what to say. I mean, do you see that? He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I just gave them to you. Just take them and encourage one another with these words. As pastors, we are sometimes told things like, you always have just the right words. Or you always know what to say. Can I let you in on a little secret about us pastors? Whenever we show up to a hospital or to a person's home or to a cemetery, we grab our Bibles, we open them up, and we find a passage of scripture just like this one. And we share the word of God with the people who are hurting. So the truth of the matter is that we don't always have just the right words to say. But the Bible does. So don't be afraid to use it. Most of you know our dear sister, Patty Olson. She's not here today because she flew to Oregon two days ago to be with her daughter, Johanna, who is tragically on hospice care. We've been praying for her for a long time as a church. I talked with Patty on Wednesday night, and she is, if you don't know Patty, she is a remarkable woman of faith. Marianne's nodding. She fully trusts in the Lord. And she is so faithful in coming to church that as I'm having this conversation with her on the phone Wednesday night, she feels the need to express that she sort of laments that she won't be at church for Easter Sunday. I'm like, Patty, we totally get it. Okay, we totally understand. So I said to her, I said, Patty, we'll miss you, but I've got an idea. Would you be okay if I just shared with you the passage of scripture that I'm going to be preaching on Sunday morning? She said, Pastor, I'd love it if you did that. And you guys, I opened up my Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I looked at verse 13, and immediately I was reminded that this was the exact passage of scripture that I preached at the funeral of Patty's other daughter, Willa, who passed away five years ago. And me and Patty reminded ourselves of that. This is that same passage. And I read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 to Patty. And here's what she said. Thank you, pastor. That's just what I needed. I don't know what I could have said to Patty in that moment that would have been just what she needed. But I did know what God's word told me I should say. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, life is hard. Life is tough. There's a lot of sorrow on this side of the resurrection. But Easter changes everything. As we journey through life, we will all encounter more trials and hardships than we can calculate. And none more distressing than death. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that death does not have the final word. Jesus does. And here's what he has to say. John eleven twenty five 25, and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this?
And that really is the most important question of all. Please pray with me.